Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavin. This is Dave O'Leary. And today we're going to be taking a look at Kiss Carnival of Souls. So... KISS comes off the convention tour. They do KISS Unplugged, and they get a lot of publicity from the reunion with Ace and Peter. And yet they have another album that they're working on with the current lineup that is very much influenced by grunge which was the dominant, most popular form of hard rock at the time. And the album is recorded. Uh, they start out in the A&M studios for the basic tracks. They do overdubs at the Music Grinder, uh, working with producer Toby Wright, who previously worked with them as an assistant uh, for Ron Nevison on the Crazy Nights album. Toby's known for producing Alice in Chains, which is perhaps the most relevant grunge artist uh, that he worked with prior to working with Kiss. They're in the studio from November 1995 to February 1996. And somewhere along the way, as they're wrapping up recording and starting to mix, they get an offer from the concert promoters to do a mega worldwide tour in full makeup and costumes with the original members. So they decide to finish working on this album and simply put it on a shelf. After the reunion tour starts, the album leaks out through fan circles. And so on October 28th, 1997, the record company kind of gives it a half-hearted release because they figure it's already out there and the longer they wait, uh, the less chance they're going to have to sell it. But they don't really push the album because it's not representative of who the band is or what they're doing. Um, they're not playing any songs from this album on the reunion tour. And uh, so they don't do any videos for it. They release one single, Jungle, and that's pretty much it. Um, so... I think we need to, before we dive into this album, I think we need to talk a little bit about the whole Sunset Strip hair metal era and what happened with grunge and how it came in and why it came in and what it did uh, both to the Sunset Strip hair metal and what it did to Kiss, right? So right off the bat, Kiss finally found themselves in a comfortable space where they were making new material that was fitting in contemporarily, but still being true to themselves on Revenge. And it didn't make any difference. Their albums were still kind of going around gold in the United States. The tour was less successful than the Hot in the Shade tour. Um, and so they did what a band in that position would do. They said, we're not getting any new fans but we can make more money from the existing diehard fans by charging $100 a ticket for the KISS convention tour, right? I mean, that's just logical. If you're not making new fans, you want to maximize your earning potential from the fans you already have. But 
now they're working on a new album. It's hard to to talk about this album in some ways for me because this is probably my least favorite Kiss album. Um, I, I have to say, in some ways, I feel like this is a betrayal of everything that the band stood for, both before and after it. But it's an endlessly fascinating album to me as well. So here's my sociological take, right? Gene and Paul grew up at a time when social mobility was at its highest in this country, from 1950 to the early 70s. It was still hard to make it in a rock and roll band. It was still a million in one shot. But chances were they weren't going to end up homeless, right? Even if they came from a lower middle class background, which they did, even if they came from a broken home, which Gene did, even if they came from a family with mental illness, which Paul did, there was a safety net there. It was never too late to work nine to five. So they were unapologetic endorsers of the American dream because it worked for them on a mega successful scale. So then time goes by and the one place that the American dream is still alive is California, right? Especially if you're a creative person, if you are a good looking model or actress or dancer or musician, you want to go out to California because it's the place where you can reinvent yourself and it's the place where you can uh, start from scratch. Nobody knows who you are and you can make the American dream still come true. So a lot of these bands that did that in the Sunset Strip also came from lower middle class backgrounds and also dealt with depression and histories of broken families and drug abuse and suicide and whatnot. But they saw coming out to the Sunset Strip as a way to erase all of that, to reinvent themselves, okay? Now, that type of music's getting neutered because you've got the PMRC and you've got pressure from the record companies to be a little bit less edgy. You've got a third generation of bands that comes off the Sunset Strip, like Winger, Warrant, Slaughter, all these bands that are kind of like not necessarily bad musicians or performers or songwriters, but kind of a weakened version, a carbon copy of a carbon copy. People were not getting into these bands because there wasn't that much depth or anything for them to grab onto, okay? So now you've got the Seattle, Seattle scene, right? that springs up and it's kind of its own microcosm. And these are the kids that grew up to be young musicians in their twenties that didn't leave home, that stayed in their hometown, okay? And they're dealing with even less opportunity, generally speaking, of economic success. They're coming from lower middle-class backgrounds and chances are some of their friends that they do know may end up homeless or killing themselves, or ODing, you know. So ironically, all the stuff that the PMRC was worried about from Sunset Strip hair metal actually becomes even more relevant when it comes to the rise of the grunge movement. But they're also more artistically experimental, both musically, lyrically. It's not just the cliche paint by numbers, uh, pop songwriting that the Sunset Strip had devolved into. So KISS finds themselves in an interesting position, right? Because a lot of these bands are actually KISS fans. Guys in Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, right? They grew up with KISS. Now they may not say it 
in interviews all the time because there was a lot of pressure on these guys not to. A big thing about the the grunge scene was that you were meant to be authentic, right? And that you 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 didn't admit that you liked these mainstream bands uh, because you were influenced by more underground punk music. And, you know, so they had to be sincere or as Hawkeye, Hawkeye Pierce said, sincerity. If you can fake that, you've got it made, <laughs> right? So... <laughs> Oh, what what's your perspective on this john because you said you had a lot to say um well that basically sums up everything i was going to say about it in that i i turned to i am one of those people that liked grunge but actually did not really like grunge um i find that my favorite Soundgarden song is actually called full-on kev's mom which is a very metal song about people falling you know going after a guy's mother you know what i mean and it's a very sort of heavy metal-esque 80s uh song and um i did i did buy nirvana's first album or not first album actually i bought nevermind that's their second album was not as big a fan as the rest of the world was because i felt that i had heard it all before when the pixies did it um, so I don't, yeah, I, I, you basically said everything I could possibly say about this. I mean, yes, um, it was time that music needed to swing back because yeah, that's a very good point. It was getting neutered and it wasn't as exciting anymore. Uh, and people wanted something that was real. They wanted people wearing flannel and looking like, um, you know, their friends or the, the guy down the street who worked rather than the person in spandex. They didn't necessarily want the, um, you know, the, the fantasy life anymore. They wanted the um, supposed real life stuff. But in, in many cases, I find a lot of that stuff to be the same sort of stuff that gels with what was happening at the time in hip hop, which is a lot of people, there was this gangster rap movement that was supposedly authentic, you know, that you knew. Um, when you rap know, what, started getting a lot more lo-fi. Yeah, what life yeah. was like in the in the streets and, you know, that kind of stuff. And But in actuality, you know, Ice Cube has a college degree. You know what I mean? I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these gangster rappers are not as hard as they sound. They're telling stories. In a lot of ways, I've saw the same sort of thing with grunge these people were telling stories you know they were all of living. all of ice cubes uh bodyguards are all vegetarians too right yeah way. so <laughs> my um you know my my funny off the cuff uh thing about this album about carnival of souls is that it is definitely my favorite alice in chains album um, <laughs> but it's you know it definitely it, it reeks of alice in chains and i hated alice in chains one because they were a band that was originally a metal band and then decided to change their sound to become to fit in more with the grunge sound and um uh, Allison Chains sounds like somebody who's waiting. The singer Lane Staley sounds like he's ready to take a giant poop at some point whenever he's singing. <laughs> and that to me is a lot of what grunge sounds like is people that are sounding like they are so tortured because they have a bowel movement waiting to happen that, um, that I, I missed that sort of metal you know, the Paul Stanley voice. And one of the things that's robbed in this album is that that Paul Stanley voice that, that I, I say, I've said this before that there's this kiss blender. You put things into the kiss blender and you get a good song because you have Paul's voice and you have the, 
the way that, you know, who's ever playing guitar is playing guitar. It always is a good song, even if it's not necessarily a good song. But in this album, it's like they decide to take apart all of the things that go into the Kiss Blender. So you have an album that is just, you know, I mean, there's definitely moments in it where I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. But um, it's it's a slog to get through it. Like it was a very hard album for me to listen to because I kept going like the, the single jungle is is a collective soul song. Just tuned down a little bit. And, you know, um, it's it's just it's so generic and I don't understand. And it, I mean, all sorts of things are going through my mind, like maybe don't make an album, you know, maybe, you know, <laughs> you don't have to do it. And I mean, the, the thoughts that were going through my head while listening to this album was like, okay, so there's a kiss machine. Paul has to make a payment on his house, probably owes his first wife some money. He's got to keep the money coming in somehow. So he keeps me. And then there's all these people that are dependent on him to, you know, for their salary and all that kind of stuff. So they have to make that album. Um, but then when I look over the things, like it's all supposedly Gene's baby, but in actuality, there's Gene very rarely actually plays bass on the album, you know? So it's like, what the, f ah, this whole album and the whole, um, you know, why are they tuning themselves to be grunge and why bother? You know, why not just take a moment and, and not make an album? Just realize that your time is, you know, I, I don't know. I don't understand this. Like I remember being out in LA and what was, uh, it was, we're, we're at the coconut tea. Not what is the place on? Is it the coconut teaser? The one across from the old Virgin Megastore? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm there with guys I'm in the band with, and we're watching some group play. And it turns out that it's it's members of Vixen, but now they're sort of like singer songwriter gals doing <laughs> sort of like an Indigo Girls kind of thing. And it's uh -huh. like. Why not just try and reinvent yourself at that point and try and do something? I mean, you certainly have enough money. So why not just uh, don't try to whatever? Never mind. I, I could go on for days about this stuff, but it just is like, why not just simply reinvent yourself? You know, why not realize that your time in the sun is over and not try and make yourself sound like this music that is supposedly because to me, um, Grunge never really sounded any much different than a lot of metal that I listened to. Um, it just sounded like, you know, it sounded like punky Led Zeppelin in a lot of places, you know, so that was with a little more energy. So I just don't, I just don't understand this album. That's where I'm coming. That's the, my final thought on it is like, what were they thinking when they did this? Here's my big question. And Dave, maybe you have some insight into this, right? My understanding is when it came time to make this album, Paul gave the band like four songs that were more in the traditional Kiss vein. Right. And I don't even know what those songs were. Maybe you do. But the rest of the bands rejected those songs and said, no, that's not what we're going to do. Grunge is what's happening right now. We're going to make a grunge album. I don't really understand why Paul didn't have the upper hand to say, well, we're going to do a Kiss album my way with these songs, or we're not going to do an album, because that's certainly where Kiss would evolve into sometime, you know, with Sonic Boom and Monster. I don't understand why he didn't have the power in the band to do the kind of material he wanted to do. Maybe you have some insight into that, Dave. You know, the only, I, I did ask him about that once, and I think the answer to that, the short answer to that is, uh, 
he he uh, he handed off, so to speak. And now look at the last two Kiss albums. Probably a direct result of what you just said about Carnival of Souls. Paul is in control. He's in control of when they record, what they record. He produces he, the whole thing. is a is the Paul show, one hundred percent. Because you look at the '80s when Gene was absentee, so to speak, as they say, Paul was kind of in charge, right? And then there was a little bit of there was a there was a, a, ch a change in the balance of power in the band almost at that point in time. The pendulum swung a little bit more over Gene. Maybe uh, I think Bruce at that point was being a little bit more outspoken about what he wanted to do with the band and the direction of travel and things that he was writing with Gene at the time. I think a lot of that, and certainly, look, we're all musicians. We've all been in this business for a long time. Let's, let's not forget the power of the record company and the A&R guys and their influence on direction of travel, what they want from their artists. And it, clearly the last Kiss album, Revenge, didn't sell to the expectations that they had wanted. Where are you going now? As you said, the, the album, the tour didn't do well. As, as well as they wanted for uh, revenge, and now they're in basically the convention market. Um, what, what's the, what's the next play? You know, what's the next play? And so, but I, but I have to say, John, uh, in, a, in, a, in a comical way, what, how do you really feel um, about the whole thing? But I, I have to tell you, I, I agree with John. I, I do. Um, I like this out. I like Allison Chains. I'll say that. I like I like a lot of that stuff. You know, but for for bands at that time that were trying to quote unquote be more authentic and shed the skin of the '80s metal stuff, you know, they all ended up with the same singer. It sounded like to me with the same goat singing all those songs. You know that yep. whole you know that whole guy. That guy was on everything. Mm -hmm. Not every you know it, it, that was the thing about that that time that you know certainly would drive you know me nuts as a, as a you know fan of music. But you know I I don't know I I think. Um, this album was a giant misfire from front to back. Um, there are songs on there that I like. There are songs in there that I just, I do find interesting, but I have to be in the mood for it. And you know, for a band, the last note on this, for a band, and you've listened to Paul and his interviews through the course of, 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 of their history, the band's history. Paul had in his mind, and a lot of his messaging was they were leading the way. They were trailblazers. People were following them. In the 80s, what happened? Did, did Kiss start to kind of mime, if you want, and borrow from other bands like Bon Jovi? Yes, 100%. Motley Crue, yes, they did. Now, all of a sudden, here we have a, a, a change in the direction of music, and there is nothing more overt in Kiss's history to point to, yes, you guys do trace, chase trend, trends than this record. It was pointless to me. Yeah. yeah it yeah. just doesn't make any sense. I just don't get it. Why not just not make a record or make an acoustic show or do the state farm circuit? You know what I mean? And not the state farm, the state, you know, uh, state uh, fair. Yeah. State fair shows. You know what I mean? I mean, that's what happened to all these bands is they all eventually, you know, it's hard to come back from that though. Once you get labeled as that kind of band, yeah, that's yeah, what you I, are for the rest of your career. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tough. It's one of those things that it's like, if you, who knows what I would have done in that situation if I'm riding that high, but at some point I would say, this is not how I write songs. But what do I know? Mike, your thoughts on the whole grunge movement? You know, around the time that you know, bands like Alice in Chains and Soundgarden were coming out, um, I was, I think I was in college and I, I just, I didn't really buy into it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't dig it. You know, I thought, you know, Alice in Chains, Man in the Box was a cool song. And, you know, but I don't think I've ever owned any 
Alice in Chains or Soundgarden records until maybe, you know, maybe three or four years ago. Um, you know, I, it, 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 I, here's, here's how uninterested I was in Alice in Chains. I think they opened for Van Halen on their 1995 tour. Um, and I remember me and my sister sat in the parking lot while the opening band was on. We even go in to listen to them. You know, and I was waiting to go see Van Halen. You know, I think what Al, I don't you guys went to the first reunion uh, tour show in Detroit. Here was Alice in Chains were the opening band, or one of the opening bands, second band in the bill. And we talk about, you know, you know, the sociological stuff and people, you know, being out of it and stuff. I remember Lane Staley was so out of it on stage because I was in the front row. He, he was just spaced out. And I think Jerry Control said, hey, he's pointing out to the sky. There was like a, you know, a plane flying over with one of those banners. And I might have said, you know, welcome Alice in Chains or whatever it said. It had to do with the band. Well, Lane didn't even look at it. And, you know, Jerry and the bass player looking at each other like, well, he, he's out of it. He, he missed the whole thing. So they just, they just played through it, you know. I don't know. I, I didn't really, it was something, I was, at that point, I was going backwards with music. You know, the 80s metal stuff was getting a little too pop and too light and too cheese. So I started to go back to Hendrix, Almond Brothers, you know, Skinner, you know, that stuff. And I didn't really venture forward with, you know, newer bands that were coming out in the 90s. I just didn't find them interesting. There were a few that I thought were cool, bands like, uh, Brother Kane and Cry of Love, and you know, I thought the Black Crows were, you know, consistently kick ass. I was into that stuff. That seemed a little more tied to the roots rock and, and, and the rock metal genre than grunge was. So, that's that being said, um, to the question about direction, I read something this week that I wasn't aware of. Um, even if Gene was driving this project, supposedly uh, Bob Ezrin was involved in the early stages of uh, the songwriting. And so, from what I read, I guess Paul had some songs he brought in. I think it's just per Bruce uh, that, you know, Bob said basically, no, that's not the direction this album's going in, uh, come up with something different. And then apparently Paul tried to add some like Pink Floyd type songs to the thing and that got rejected as well. So I think he, I don't know why, but he was basically sort of forced into to moving forward on this, on this project. Yeah. It was definitely Ezrin that recommended Toby Wright. Mm -hmm. I know that much, okay. for sure. But, well, I, I, but I'll say this. Um, I either, I either love this record or hate it depending on, you know, when I'm listening to it. Uh, at the time there was a lot going on. You had, I remember getting a, you know, I'll, I'll admit I had a bootleg cassette of the album before it was officially released. I don't know how I got it, you know, but you know, yeah, <laughs> but I thought it was really different. I thought, what the hell are they doing at the time? Yeah. Um, but I will say this, listen to the album, you know, just week, this week, this week in the car, it sounds great cranked up. I, I kind of like the production on it. It sounds crisp and full, probably a little more or less, I should say less, um, like airy than revenge sounds, you know, revenge compared to this, you know, sounds a little more produced, whereas this is a little more meat and potatoes, but it, mm -hmm. it cuts through. I love all the, the guitar playing stuff that, that Bruce is doing. I think he's really shining on it. I think, uh, to sort of counter John's point, there are a few really great Paul Stanley moments vocally on this record. I think his voice, you know, is, is probably you know pretty strong on a, on a lot of the tunes. Uh, but bottom line, you know, I, I think even Paul said, you know, why why be a second rate Allison Chains or Soundgarden? You know, we've already got that. Right. But put yourself in in in, <laughs> so in a position true. of being in a yeah that too. But you know, put yourself in in a position of being in a band. You have a focus. You want to do your thing. You want to sound like you. You have to sort of take your hat off and say, great job, guys, and doing an album that doesn't sound like you. And that's so ballsy and so adventurous. And I, they did that. Whether you like it or not, they were able to do it. They were able to adapt. And, you know, imagine what would happen if they didn't do the Unplugged thing and they didn't do the reunion tour. You know, would we have enjoyed seeing this being performed live at the time? And no, I thought it would have been one of the worst things I've ever experienced in Kiss's history. 
Yeah. I wasn't interested in at the time, but I think production wise and songwriting, uh, there are definitely things here that, you know, harken back to things on creatures and some of their heavier records, but uh, it's just, it's an odd, it's an odd fit. It's, it's definitely, it came out of left field. Uh, but, you know, like I think we said, you know, this is kind of like, you know, the, the precursor to, you know, to Bruce Killick's Union Band. I think <laughs> that might've been a better album, if you will, but mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you can't fault Kiss's playing them. They're, they're pros, you know, they did a great job on it. Whether you like it or not, it, it's a few. You know, Mike, I think you to, to, to jump on your point there, Bob Ezrin's um, initial um, work with the band on this and, and, the, and the, the idea that they didn't tour this album either. They never played really any of this stuff live. Go back a little ways. The last, the last time that Bob Ezrin really was in the picture, obviously Revenge, but before that, when Ezrin was in the picture and Gene was trying to push for a little bit more creative control as far as direction of travel, that yeah. album. Right, that's another polarizing album in Kiss's canon. They never toured that either. And kind of now you jump forward a decade or so, give or take, and Bob Ezrin's back, kind of in the picture again, at least on the front end of this. Gene's trying to push for a little bit more creative control, of, you know, of the direction of travel where that album's going to go. And you have those two albums almost bookend each other in some way. You know, they are very, they're very much those are very those albums are outliers in, in the in the in the in the Kiss catalog. To me, and you think about it, the balance of power and who was involved in, in those records, in some way or, or another, at the time. That's that's an interesting point. Definitely, definitely. I, I agree with that. You know, um, the thing about grunge, especially when when we get into this, analyzing some of the lyrics here, is that for me, a lot of it felt very contrived and pretentious. I thought that there was some depth to some of the bands, some of the songs, you know, when Nirvana said, what else can I say? Everyone is gay. I thought, well, you know, I know technically maybe that's true. If you look at the Kinsley report, everybody's on a sliding scale of their sexuality, whatever, but probably not true, but probably good that at least homophobic middle America might be forced to contemplate (laughs) the notion. Right. Um, so I, I thought that there were, were some positive aspects there. The, the music wasn't as sexist as, you know, a lot of the Sunset Strip stuff was. Gene wrote this book, 27, The Legend and Mythology of the 27th Club. And there's a chapter about Kurt Cobain, which I thought is really interesting because it reads like it's actually from his perspective and not ghostwritten, right? So he quotes Cobain as saying, I'm a spokesman for myself. It just so happens there's a bunch of people concerned with what I have to say. I find that frightening at times because I'm just as confused as most people. I don't have answers for anything. I don't want to be a fucking spokesperson. And Gene writes, this mentality, the rejection of traditional markers of success never made any sense to me as a younger man. I think that goes without saying. I never understood the luxury of being able to worry about an abstract concept like a punk ethos. I was just glad anyone wanted to pay me to play. And I've always loved talking my head off to anyone that would listen. Different strokes, as they say. I came from a different generation, a different type of community. I was an immigrant obsessed with the unironic America I saw on television, and I was ready and willing to gobble up the dream whole. Perhaps this was the same America Cobain found so unpleasant. Suburban angst, internal introspective pain, the pain of artistic integrity never resonated with me. I came from a home with bullet holes in it, and escaping that seemed all-consuming. 
the rest unimportant. All problems are relative, but there are ways of putting mental health and problems of art and self-actualization on the back burner when one has more physical-based dangers to worry about. Myself and some of my ilk were comfortable with materialism, with wealth, with a proud capitalist ideal, and with being rock stars. It suited us, but Cobain was never comfortable with this power, this lottery he had hit, though he had the looks, the songwriting, and musicianship chops, and the success. I was never in a position to understand where he was coming from. In essence, my childhood feelings were slightly too low on the hierarchy of needs to even consider the sorts of things that Cobain found so painful. So at a time, me and a few of my contemporaries from the 70s and 80s judged the grunge mantras rather harshly, though we did actually like the songs. Those of us from previous decades were positioned as the natural enemy of this new sound, which dressed down in an anti-theatricality, anti-showmanship chick, and who sang about anger and pain as opposed to sex and grandstanding. Cobain disliked the macho and ultra-hetero mentalities from music's earlier years and from the people around him in Aberdeen before he was ever in a band. He resented the bullying and pressures he felt to be a certain sort of person in his teens, so it was no surprise that music that he espoused, these values did not speak to him. In a community that stretches macho male sexual stories as a highlight of all conversation, I was an underdeveloped, immature little dude who never got laid and was constantly razzed. That right there, I think, speaks to the difference from Gene and, and, and Paul's perspective, and yet they made this album. Right, which makes me fucking hate Gene Simmons even more. I mean, that's really, I mean, look, I am no champion of Kurt Cobain, okay? But, and I am no champion of grunge. In fact, I sometimes look back at that period of time and think there was a bunch of lousy music going on back then. But, and 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 let me interject. There's one, fa there's one very funny line from my dad. My dad goes, who is this Alice in Chains guys? And I go, well, this is, they write a song about their dad. The guy wrote a song about his dad dying in Vietnam and all the pain that came from that. And I said, and my dad looked at me and said, my, my friends were dying from Vietnam. I almost died in Vietnam. I don't care about this guy's dad dying in Vietnam. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with that, but that I don't find his, that's ridiculous. I mean, why would he compare his way of writing music to, to, Cobain's way of writing music. I mean, it just, ah, no, that makes me hate Gene. Not hate him, but I don't, I don't agree with that. I, I think that's fine, but his lack of understanding uh, completely kind of disgusts me at this point. I mean, it's eventually you're just going to burn out of that sort of bravado that comes from all of that 80s metal. You know what I mean? And, and so that's what had to happen is, is grunge had to happen to some degree. There had to be a moment where people were like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't want to play that role. I don't believe in that fantasy. That isn't really necessarily the fantasy I want. Um, and so I'm going to turn it on its head. But I don't know. I mean, there's, you know, you, there's all sorts of other stuff that was happening during that grunge time. I and mean, we keep going to Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jams, those are Soundgarden, those are the big bands. But at the same time, there were bands that were coming up there, like the Replacements, the Pixies, Fugazi, bands that had like actual messages and socio-political things that were being said. And I understand that, yes, Alice in Chains and Kurt Cobain were the biggest bands to come out of that. And I mean, Silverchair, I mean, for Christ's sakes. But, um, 
you know, but there was a lot more going on at that time that he is just sort of being dismissive of that is really the whole anti, you know, the whole anti materialism thing is is based on the fact that it was a generation that was growing up. It's the generation mantra. We all were we all learned that we were not going to make as much money as our parents were. Right. We were the first generation that statistically was economically liable to end up worse than our parents. Right, exactly, like you stated before. So this is what these artists were discovering at, at the same time. You know, um, you know, listen to Bastards of Young by the the replacements. I mean, that basically sums up all that stuff. And it's it's um yeah, no, man, I don't I don't buy that. I mean, I understand, like there's a lot of crap in 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 uh grunge that I do not like, but I find that kind of to be ridiculous that he would say, like, why would you because the trappings of materialism started to people started to realize that it was false. That's all. Well, I think he's just saying that he understands that he couldn't understand Kurt Cobain's right, position. He, he came from but, a different generation and had a different perspective. Yeah, but the way that he goes about it is so kind of mean. I mean, why can't he just sort of appreciate it? I mean, it's, I mean, you know, oh, geez, man, I could go on for days. I'm listening to Jason Ibel or Isbell. Have you been listening to him at all? He's like a college-educated singer-songwriter who writes these songs about, you know, his dad who was a minor and all that kind of stuff. His dad wasn't a minor. You know what I mean? His mom wasn't, you know, growing up in a small town in West Virginia. wasn't. But the way that he sings his songs, you're like, yeah, all right, all right. You know, um, that's what music is about. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of poets that muddy their waters that they may appear to be deep, right? And right, yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> we're not all, you know, we're not we're not coming straight out of Compton, you know. We're a bunch of white kids from Pittsburgh that are well, David, you're actually from somewhere cool, but uh, but that's what I, you know what I mean. I mean, none of us are as as hard as we want to appear, or as deep as we want to appear, or as whatever <laughs> as we want to appear. So why not, you know, have someone like Kurt Cobain sort of exploring the falseness of materialism or how it has failed him, you know, in some degree? And he did. And, you know, I mean, he spoke to that generation, certainly. Um, but then again, if you look at Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, four out of five of the leaders of those bands did not come to good ends. That is true, yeah. Let me take you back, John. We're mm -hmm. at Century City. We're walking along, and we see Gene Simmons sitting there with Shannon Tweed. And he's dressed right. down, and we're like, could that really be him? And, and he says to us, well, don't make it too obvious. Have yourselves a seat, right? And we start talking. And he says, uh, he's talking about the new album. And I said, is it really a good idea to call it Head? And he goes, what's wrong with Head? And at the time, they had a cover they show on Kiss Confidential that was kind of like the, uh, the gimp in Pulp Fiction wearing the leather... Right. Yeah. You the know, leather mask. mask. Or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, flames coming out of it. I said, well, the monkeys had an album called Head. And he said, yeah, but nobody's going to remember that. And he said, well, OK, what do you think I should call it? And I said, well, how about something like Nightmares in the Rock and Roll Funhouse? And he goes, hmm, kind of retro, but I like it. And the next two albums were Carnival Souls and Psycho Circus. So I'm not saying I had an impact there, but maybe I did. <laughs> 
I don't know. Well, Carnival of Souls is that that '68 movie, that horror movie. That's actually one of my favorites. But yeah, yeah, '60. It's also on public domain, so you can watch it on YouTube if you want to. I think it's '62, right? Yeah, I was just researching it today because I think it's actually kind of relevant to talking about the album, that movie. But one of the guys I was working with as a runner at Signet Sound quit that job and went to go work at Music Grinder when Kiss was in the studio making this album. So I kind of got a little bit of the inside track on how it was going. It was not going well. Paul and Gene were not getting along. Um, Paul felt like Gene only cared about his own songs, wasn't bothering to learn the bass parts for Paul's songs, and Paul was really pissed off about that. Um, so I think that's the answer to your question as to why they had Bruce Kulik play a lot of the bass on this record. All right, let's get into it. First song, Hate. The only good one on the album. I like it. Uh, definitely sounds a little bit like Unholy. I see that it's written by the Van Zen or whatever his name is. I guess is that the guy from Black and Blue or whatever? No, that's a he's a he's a guitar player. He just put out an instrumental album called No Words. He's kind of like a, along the lines of a Gary Moore type. Okay, all right. Uh, I liked it just because I like the the. It's got a good groove, good riff to it, but nothing really. You know, I mean, again, it has that sort of unholy type vibe to it. You know, life's going to let you down. Um, or, you know what I mean? This is my mankind. I'm the hate that mankind creates. You know, that kind of stuff. Which, again, sounds very grunge to me. But um, that's what they were going for. Once again, John is 100% correct. This is a sibling to uh, Unholy. It, it is one of the stronger songs on the record. I, I like it. Um, love Bruce's guitar playing, um, as I do most of this record, by the way. Yeah, I think Bruce overall is the MVP on this record. To the extent that this record works at all, it's probably due to Bruce Kulik. Yes. It's a good opening tune for the record. Uh, it, it's heavy as all hell, and um, you can tell Bruce is definitely doing his research and coming up with some really great uh, guitar tones. I hear a bunch of... Uh, you know, throughout the record, things like, you know, whammy pedal and a lot of fuzz tones and univibes and wah-wah. I mean, you know, he's, he's smoking in terms of the guitar stuff. And it's a killer riff. Uh, but I, like, I think it's a cool blend between, like, the, the heaviness of the riff and that sort of, I guess, to call it like a ninth or a seventh chord that Jimi Hendrix would do. Sort of like the Foxy Lady thing, you know. There is a lot of Hendrix in this album. There yeah. is a lot of Hendrix on this album. Yep. Well said. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, yeah. Cool open with a, with a Gene song. Um you know, it, it, it's cool. Uh, you, know, I, you know, again, uh, this week, I like, I love this record. You know, I, I've listened to it a lot. And it, like I said, it sounds great in the car cranked. And um, I, overall, production wise, I kind of like the production of this record more so than I, I did listening to Revenge. Just because, again, it's a little more, I wouldn't say it's lo-fi, but it's a little more organic, I should say. The drums, I would say, are lo-fi. Particularly, yeah, I was just going to say, I was going to re, you know, remind myself, yes, I like the drum mix on this better than uh, what was on Revenge. Hmm. You know, because I think you can hear Eric's drums. Sometimes, you know, he's an amazing, badass drummer, but sometimes a lot of his drum kit sounds the same. Like, you know, floor tom sounds like a snare. Hmm. And, you know, bass drum sounds like, like it's all, you know, slap and not really fullness, you know, whereas this sounds like a guy playing, you know, vintage drum kit in a, in a really heavy band. In your room, it sounds like he's in your presence when he's playing, as opposed to all the other, you know, the reverb and all the other, you know, drowning out of you know the eighty sounding you know snare drums and all that. This sounds very much present in the room. I, I like this mix. Okay, so Scott Van Zen, 
um, also had written Spit on Revenge. He wrote In My Head, Seduction of the Innocent, and then Carnival of Souls that ended up on Gene Simmons' album Asshole as well. Yeah, I mean, definitely part of this song is about you know, man's capacity for inhumanity towards man and uh, fits in with Unholy and then later The Devil Is Me. But, you know, right off the bat, this first line, hate is what I am because underneath this heart there beats the heart of man is an incredibly awkward lyric i mean like if you're gonna start an album i mean you could say deep inside there beats the heart of man i know what he's trying to say but man there's better ways to say this and lyrically this song is really kind of all over the place this this is my theory about this album this is gene going back to one of his faces that we don't see that much we know him as like the lady killer and the businessman and the god of thunder this is Gene as a rabbinical student, right? Like asking the, the, the philosophical and religious questions that would come up if you were a rabbinical student, which he was. That's a part of him. It's almost like deep thoughts with Gene Simmons, and a lot of them really are tangentially unconnected to anything else. You'll wear your crown when you're six feet underground is kind of the philosophy of the medieval Catholic church, right? Your time on this ball of dirt is going to be short and painful, but that's okay because heaven will be great as soon as you die. So don't worry about that. <laughs> don't you think it's odd man was created in the image of God? Did man create God? Did God create man? The whole idea of God being this all-powerful being that is beyond our conception. So, of course, he's created in our image, in our minds, because we're unable to conceive of him. And our notion of God is simply a mask, is something the theologians have talked about and Joseph Campbell has talked about. All you martyrs, saints, and sinners go through the same door. Well, that's kind of an argument for, it's almost like it doesn't matter what your moral behavior is on earth because we're all going to die anyhow. Conversely, when he says, you know, so you're looking for a, for a savior, I'm here to tell you, you got to save yourself. Again, he's talked about this theme, the whole idea of, well, I don't walk on water that he talked about on, on Hot in the Shade. So in a way, I kind of feel like the Gene songs in this album are all kind of a philosophical concept album about his time in rabbinical school. You know, I know that he talks about priests a lot, but it's not that far-fetched to think that he had a friend that was in rabbinical school that also thought about maybe being a rock and roller and then ended up, you know, becoming a rabbi or whatever, then ended up killing himself. And I don't know that for sure, but that's definitely a way to interpret all of these songs, all of his songs on this album. The priest, it plays a big role in the movie Carnival of Souls, right? Because the woman is playing organ in the, in the church and then she starts playing this weird, scary music and he casts her out, right? Which is kind of what happened to Gene Simmons, right? He got cast out of conventional American religion and, and the preachers came after him. And, you know, he was, you know, not beloved necessarily by the rabbis for who he became. So anyhow, that's my take on this song. Moving on to Rain. Not, not, not a bad song. Again, it's, it's fine. It's, uh, uh, it's Paul trying to be Paul. It's interesting that you said that there were a lot of good Paul vocal moments this is one that i feel like is his last sort of try at it 
uh, because I'm not that I, I, I wanted more out of it. It's because they detune and it's, you know, that kind of stuff. It just doesn't sound as it's a, I don't know. It sounds like Paul trying to be party Paul, but tuned down, I guess. Well, the, the, the melodies in Paul's verses tend to be very melodically limited on this album, like almost like to the point where, you know, it's like he's forcing himself to do that and it doesn't sound very natural. Right. It sounds like he's trying to make the sound. I mean, he's trying to imitate the sound of grunge at the time, but at the same time, be Paul Stanley. But he just can't keep that Paul Stanley in, man. But in contrast to that, if you want to call it the bridge, which I think they do twice, that bridge is badass. His voice is powerful as all hell, and that bridge could be on any you know Kiss album, in my opinion. It's just got that kind of ringing you know guitar chords, and it, it doesn't sound you know like it like it's part of a, a de, you know a detuning you know song. You know, but that for me that, that bridge kicks ass. That's 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 fine, Paul Stanley. You know throughout his career, I mean that's that's when you want to say this is what Paul Stanley should sound like vocally. That, that bridge, it's definitely, you know, it, it delivers in that way. I agree. You know, one of the interesting things about this album is that Paul had sort of fallen into this style of songwriting where he, the chordal accompaniment would more or less support the melody that he was singing, but it wasn't so much riff-based songwriting anymore. And one of the interesting things about this album is that it's almost all riff-based. And so it really forces Paul to take a different approach to a lot of his vocals. Well, think about this, though, too, with the riff thing. I mean, take a song like uh, Lover All I Can from Dress to Kill. That's a super riffy song, and that's a really hard song to play and sing at the same time. Granted, they didn't, you know, tour on any of these songs, but either way, you know, point being, you know, there was a time where they were occasionally writing, you know, riffy-type material, and, and to me, that reminds me again of Hendrix, in a way, you know, and, and Band of Gypsies era Hendrix, where there's a lot of chromatic riffs happening and but, but yeah, I think one of the reasons why that bridge again sounds so great too is because it's not based on a, a drop D tuning riff. It's, it's a, something you could play on really like a standard tuned guitar. The, the giveaway, you know, Allison Chains or Soundgarden trick here is that sort of like, like the half step bend that they're doing in, in a lot of the riffs. And to me, that kind of pigeonholes the record. You know, if that wasn't there, then you wouldn't think so much that, it, that it's, you know, them trying to sound grungy, if you will. Well, there's an Allison Chain song called Rain When I Die that has the lyric in the chorus, I think it's going to rain, which is the exact same lyric that Paul sings in this song, <laughs> which is a pretty blatant, you know, steal. Yeah, yeah. This is pretty much what I think about all the Paul album, songs on this album. Do I like his voice? Yes. Are there places in this song where his voice is, is very, very strong? Absolutely. As Mike said, Bridge is fantastic. But to me, this it sounds forced. This is Paul trying to be and write in a place that he's not comfortable. And it's like he's these little Legos, these little building blocks. He's just trying to grab these little elements and trying to put it together in a way that's cohesive, but it's it's outside of his natural writing and its comfort as a writer. And I think it comes through in most of these songs. I think Rain is, is the first example of that awkwardness for me in Paul's writing on this record. Also, you know, Paul's talking about he can't stand himself. He doesn't, you know, he can't find his way off the floor. Well, you know, if you've read his book, I mean, all this stuff was stuff that he felt, I mean, that he worked out in therapy from a very early age, but it's almost antithetical to the whole KISS attitude that he presented. And so I guess the question becomes, well, do you want him to, pre to present a side of himself that may be valid, but, you know, is, is nothing that has to do with the KISS ethos, 
or do you want him to be consistent with that, right? I mean, I like the imagery of the line, clouds are bursting over my bed. Um, that's kind of vivid. I, I think this song is almost like a rewrite of Tears Are Falling, rewritten through the lens of being a grunge song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I like that. Well said. So, Master and Slave. I, I can't even get through it, man. Just go to Mike. Mike will talk about the musicianship that I missed and that'll make it <laughs> better. Because I couldn't even get to it. There's something about there's something about these faux S and M things or BDSM things that I can't stand. So uh Mike, tell us why it's good musically. Cause I I couldn't even okay. get through it. I couldn't even listen to the lyrics. Just tell me why I'm wrong. Well, this this is the classic uh sort of I don't want to call it the arrangement, but the uh the dynamic, the day, the Dave and I have. Uh, I'll, as soon as I put on a record, I just say, to, you know, does this rock or does it not? That's the most important thing. Does it sound good? Are there some cool riffs? You know, if that, if you got that, then you got my ear. Whereas I leave, you know, the uh, lyric analysis to Dave always. He's always had a great appreciation for lyrics, much more so than I have. So, you know, my advice to anyone is, is if you want to enjoy the record, listen to it for the riffs and the music. Um, but if you want to get, you know, an uplifting, you know, Kiss experience, you're not going to get that here at all. Right. Um, but uh, again, one of the cool things about the riffs, though, is this also one of the bands we didn't mention, and they're not a, a grunge band. They're from, I believe, Austin, or they're definitely from Texas. Uh, there's a lot of King's X type riffs mm. on this record yeah, as well. You know, they, they also so... tuned down uh, or did like the drop D tuning on a lot of stuff and a lot of sort of like uh, uh, rhythmic changes and, and tempo changes and meter changes in their music. And that made me break up my King's X records. And I was like, okay, you know, this, you know, this is all kind of related and it's of the period, but uh, just, you know, again, King's X will only sound like King's X. And, you know, this is Kiss kind of sounding like, I don't know. I, again, back to the point of- That's the band, want, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's what, you know, okay. sort of shown through for me this week. I thought, well, there's something else that's, that this record reminds me, and that was it. Um, but I, yeah, the, the lyrics, you know, I, 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 again, there's it, just no uplift, you know, which I, I want from a Paul Stanley song. And I think that that's missing here. Yeah. Well, let Paul Stanley do an acoustic solo album about his therapy. I'd buy that. <laughs> or at least stream it a couple of times. I mean, <laughs> it's almost like the anti elder in this song because, you know, hope mm -hmm. being a temporary light before we return tonight. This is from the guy who told us if hope is lost, then so are we. I can't help but picture the candle on the gatefold of the elder cover. When I when I yeah. hear that, you know, Again, yeah, this song's all over the place lyrically. The only part of this song that rings even remotely true to me is that when he says, "Love the mighty drug we crave, the master and the slave will rule us to our graves," because that at least is in keeping with the idea of love as a force of nature and him being the star child and the sort of yin and yang of it. You know, that to me. Like if, if you want to write the rest of the song about that, that's great. But, you know, writing about the futility of life and the hopelessness and we're all going to die in the end. It's kind of like, you know, why do I want to hear a song about that? Yeah, especially from kids. Yeah. <laughs> and, but then again, too, you know, that, that scream he does in the tune is badass. That's great. Um, but I always, you know, you, you know, obviously we all do recordings. Uh, my issue with that scream is it, it's, the edit is just, it's so close to like the, you know, the low sort of speaking part that he does. And then the scream, it's like, maybe they should have waited two bars before they introduced the scream. Mm. 
you know, it, it's, it seems like it's an overlap there. It's, it's like they, they rushed that moment. They should have let it breathe, and then the screen would have sounded even bigger than it is. Good point. Minor, minor issue from my perspective, and it's not my band, so they can do what they want. So next up is probably my favorite song on the album, Childhood's End. Yeah, I actually like that. This is my second favorite song on the album simply because it has sort of a very nice storytelling element to it this is about gene's friend dying right um well it's a little hard who to, is it about it's a little hard to tell because he reuses yeah. some lyrics from legends never die that he wrote from the wendy o williams solo album and uh, don't tell me on, on the wendy o williams solo album it seems to be he's talking about a famous person who dies right but people will remember that person and keep them in their hearts and all this kind of stuff um and then on this album, it seems like he's talking about two people that were friends that grew up, you know, both wanting to be rock and rollers and the other person's life took a different path. And then he committed suicide. So I don't know if they could have both died on a Tuesday morning and it was reported in the New York Times. Right. There's, there's a very specific lyric that Gene doesn't necessarily write. And maybe that's a lyric written by Tommy Thayer or something, but... That's not a standard gene line. It's not, you know what I mean? His stuff usually isn't specific when he's telling a story. So, but that's the line that he took from the other song he wrote. So that's what makes me think it is a gene line. Oh my, okay, good. Well, I feel that it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting personal story. Um, at least I took it as that when I listened to it. It's got a nice um, way that it's, I mean, the, the, the song itself really kind of actually is very good. Um, and it almost kind of steps out of the whole grunge sound a little bit, you know what I mean? But um, I, I took it, I liked it. I mean, it was sort of almost a confessional song. Now that you're telling me that it was written, I mean, I took it as like, wow, Gene Simmons had friends. Gene Simmons has friends that killed themselves, you know what I mean? That he still keeps in touch with, you know what I mean? So it was sort of like, uh, that's why I liked it. I thought I was getting a view into <clears throat> Gene's other side, but. Right. But, you know, there is a certain poignancy about friendships that that happen, you know, before you're an adult and then continue onward, you know, post adulthood right, yeah. and the different paths that your lives take. And I think the song captures that really well. Mm -hmm. um, when he does the the reference to you've got something about you, you've got something I need at the end. I think it's mm -hmm. interesting because obviously that's lines from God of Thunder, but he's talking mm -hmm. about that in the context of a friendship with another man, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I think that there's this thing in our society where when you have close male friendships, it's, it's, you know, like people go, Oh, what are they gay or something? You know, it's like, it's, it's looked upon as this weird thing. And yet, here he is writing a song about it that that's a place he hasn't really gone before and they actually go back to that when they do the song stand uh on sonic boom but uh arthur c clark obviously wrote the book childhood's end uh you know which gene would have been aware of as a young science fiction fan um who did fanzines and stuff like that so um there's a lot of a lot of references like that a lot of stuff that i think harkens back to him when he was 16, 17 years old in that rabbinical school. Hmm. But from a more uh, current at the time perspective, I kind of wondered if he was writing about Kurt Cobain's suicide. And because didn't Kurt Cobain shoot himself and leave a suicide note? And, you know, the 
the dynamic between Gene having issues with, you know, sui- you know, people that commit suicide and we call it, you know, weakness or issues and, you know, and then sort of, you know, is he poking fun at the fact that, oh, so you'll never be a rock and roll star? You know, it's, you know, is that tragic or is, he, is that from another lens, you know, his point of view about, you know, this whole thing? I mean, it could go a couple different ways. But to me, it seemed to be, I thought I was just listening to, you know, a song about Kurt Cobain. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, you know, this is a song that to me, it was a rare moment where listening to it, um, you can connect to Gene Simmons as a human being, as opposed to the character of Gene Simmons, you know, that he likes to portray. There's that, you know, and, and without opening the dark door of, of, uh, of my particular past, but I shared with you guys before losing a, a, my friend in childhood. So I had that connection to the song. I connected with the song in that way. And but as a musician, I, I'm not playing, I'm not picking up the guitar. I've never tried to play that song that I can remember, but it sounds like he's got some really cool, at least Bruce does some really cool use of octaves mm-hmm. underneath that, maybe that chorus. And it's a very tasty use of octaves. You know, what you know, um, as players, you know, they're often overused, um, especially for people that don't know what to do <laughs> in a particular place. So let's throw some octaves in there, play them real fast. But this is a really tasty. It's a tasty way to, to, to do... Um, the, you, if, if I'm hearing right, my memory and what I'm hearing in my head is correct. It sounds like that's what's going on there. But I like the arrangement of the song. I, I, I like the, the humanity in Gene's lyrics yeah. to the extent that you can um, discern from that. And, and uh, wherever it was, wherever that was inspired, whoever inspired that song, good for Gene for at least having the courage to go there as a writer. This is the one song I think from this album that I, that I, I think, you know, would be cool to hear live. Um, and I think you're right. There's yeah. really tasty octaves and bends, and it's really melodically interesting the way the arrangement weaves around the vocal melody. And yeah, because they'll do some layering too, where they kind of sing some of the verse over the outro chorus, right? Or there's like a sort of round happening there. Yeah. Um, there's some, but the, to, to me, the 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 verse, the lyric verse, and and the chorus verse are really catchy. I find myself singing those two. You know, I might not be singing the right words, but I'm singing that melody in my head. You know, it, it's a catchy thing. And I wonder how much of Bob Ezrin was the influence behind those kids. Yeah. Sing, you know, the, uh, and I was right? going to bring that up, too, because there's a funny clip. I don't know if it's in uh, the Kissology, but uh, they're they're in the studio. And I guess they show the, you know, the kids in the studio and Paul's in the control room and the kids are in the control room, or, or the kids are in the, the, the room where you record. Right. So I guess Paul gets on the, uh, the talk back and he yell. I'm not going to yell, but he's like. Don't touch anything. <laughs> the kids get all frantic. He's laughing at himself for scaring these little kids. <laughs> not, you know, not the kind of thing you expect from Paul, but he apparently got a kick out of it. So if you want to may have a good laugh about it, check it out. It's funny as hell. I had forgotten about that. That's great. So speaking of Paul and kids, Paul writes a song for his son called I Will Be There that I think is almost a great song. Oh, man. See, now my pithy joke comment on this will not be because when he says the line, I will be there like a father to a son. I think of the famous Chris Rock line, which is that's what you're supposed to do. Um, So I'm sorry, man. I didn't really like it. That lyric really threw me for it because there was a part of me that was like, well, of course, you're supposed to be there for you. You're his father. So I um, go ahead. Tell me why it's a great song, because I didn't like it. I'll, t- I'll tell you why. What kills the song for me instead. Yeah. Okay. OK, the line like a father to his son, because 
It's not a metaphor. This song is right, clearly exactly about his he has love for his son. Right, exactly. So you can't say, as the son of an English teacher, you know, you can't say, I love you <laughs> like a father to his son unless you're not his son. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that lyric just, you know, was, I mean, come on, where's the quality control here, people? Why isn't someone editing this? Right. No, exactly right. That's that's exactly what it's not. It's it doesn't work. It does not work. I vote for this to be the worst song ever penned by Paul. Really? Stanley. That's all. I'm okay. Okay. Yes. Hey. Yeah, it just seems Thank so you. empty. And I mean, I understand that it comes with. He's got a reason to write it, obviously, because he's got a you know he's got a new son and he wants to write a touching song about his new son. But uh, I'm sorry, Paul. It just didn't work. I mean, he, he writes great songs and we, we can't take anything away from him in that regard. But I, I didn't really, I don't know, I didn't really enjoy it, but also too, I mentioned a band uh, called Brother Kane, right? And they had an album that came out in 93 yeah. or so. I think it was uh, Seeds. Well, there's a song on this CD, yeah. it's called Voice of Eugene. It's the same kind of tuning, the same timbre, the same similar chord structure. And it's, even the production is, is similar, but there's, there's no strings on the Brother Kane song, you mm. know? So for me, I thought, wow, that was, you know, whether that was an influence on the song, I have no idea, but I, th I thought it was a, quite a, co a coincidence, you know, for a song that sounds, I guess maybe they were going to points of reference at the time to, to write new stuff, but either way, the most interesting part about the song is the bridge. Again, I love bridges and songs. And, you know, when they did Kiss Symphony, this would have been, you know, a shoe in in a way, right? For being mm -hmm. performed live with the symphony, but, uh, you know, they never did that. Yeah, I, it, there's just so many other great, great, great Paul songs, and this one doesn't really, you know, speak to me. Okay. Jungle. To me, this song is Paul's take on Welcome to the Jungle, right? And it, in, a, in a way, it, it, it's better because Welcome to the Jungle, as great a song as it is, doesn't really illustrate the metaphor. In what way is Hollywood like a jungle? right? Or the big, bad, big city. I mean, who are the lions? Who are the prey? Paul actually gets into that in this song. Mm -hmm. So I think it goes to an interesting place because of that. I think that's why it's the first single. The only thing that, that holds me up is when he gets into the lines, the child takes a hit and then he starts to cry. A mother never hears her baby's last goodbye. What are we talking about here? Like the child yeah. like takes a hit of crack and instantly dies. I mean, like yeah, I don't... That's, that's how I read it. The, the, but then the I that's funny. You, you point out the exact same thing. The child takes a hit, meaning takes one more blow from society or life or whatever. And or shot or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah or he's yeah, in a exactly. fight maybe, that's... but it's 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 vague at best. It's actually not a bad line. I actually kind of like it because of its vagueness or universality, as they would say. But I hear you. I, I would think that lyric could be on a Ghetto Boys LP, you know, something, you know, yeah. it, 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 that's that kind of subject matter. I saw the Ghetto Boys live. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. I, I actually like the song quite a bit. I don't, I mean, it is, um, it is Shine by Collective Soul. But it's, um, you know, by way of, um, 
you know, Alice in Chains, but it's lyrically the way that it rides. And then it has that kind of, it's also like seven minutes long, which I'm kind of impressed that they did because it's got a cool little bridge and musical breakout part there. That's pretty neat. I, I like it a lot. I think it's actually, it's what they wanted, what I feel like they wanted to do, which was sort of experiment more with what they could do. Um, so that's again, it's probably, it's another one that if we were going to turn this into just an EP, I'd, it would be on the EP. And I guess this is the single they released too, right? It is the single, yeah. Yeah. And in 1997, Metal Edge Reader's Choice Award for Song of the Year. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, Metal Edge had to try to cover a lot of territory at the time. You know, they might not yeah. have been so focused on metal. Yeah. <laughs> All three metal bands. <laughs> yeah. Was anybody stuffing the ballot at Cosmo Records? <laughs> well, they were close personal friends with Jerry Miller, but take that for what you will. Uh, <laughs> this song could have been on the on the Bruce Kulick uh, Union record for sure. Yeah, uh, you know the tones are there, the riffs are there. Uh, I think Paul's vocals in the chorus are, are fantastic. They're strong as hell. Um, you know, and hey, he does a, a roar. You know, in in the chorus too, right at the end. So hey, <laughs> sonic uh, landscape there, right? So then we get to In My Head, which um, has some interesting imagery, I guess, with the, the termites glowing red in his head. I mean, kind of harkens back again to Unholy with, you know, I am the incubus, I lay the egg in you, the worm that burrows through your brain. Clearly, Gene is mm -hmm. kind of obsessing about, like, brain parasites for some reason. But, um, <laughs> you know... The song is kind of a little bit weird for the sake of being weird. I don't know that it adds up to much, but it does have my favorite line on the album, which is, I experiment with myself. Yeah, I love that line. That's a great line. And I think there's a truth to that. I think that is how Gene Simmons approached and approaches his life, right? He sees things, that girl that he wants, that money that he wants, and he plays this mental game with himself, like, what do I have to do to get from A to B? Who do I have to become? How do I have to behave? There's more truth in that line than there is in much of the rest of this album. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have zero to add to that. That's actually the best thing that you just said. That's great. Yeah, because that is the only note I wrote about the song is that it's that, that line I experiment myself is a great line. Mm -hmm. And it's a heavy riff. I like the head. I mean, I do kind of, I don't mind the riff. It's, it's Alice in Chains by way of Slayer, which I guess is the same thing this producer worked on, right? Slayer as well? Yeah, he did work like with Slayer. This producer had a lot to do with the sound on this album. For some reason, listening to these songs makes me listen to other artists. I don't know why that uh, the sort of instrumental breakdown solo reminds me of uh, the, the Hellion from uh, Judas Priest in a way. It's got like the same kind of huh. sounds and the way the riffs, you know, kind of are, are working with, with each other. That made me go listen to Judas Priest. So, um, yeah, but... Um, Two, when we talk about the, the main riff in the verse, why is it to me like the, that chugging rhythm when that it comes in halfway through the verse? Why does that seem so behind the beat? Mm. You know, it just seems out of sync with what's going on with the rhythm section. And it, again, I'm not, you know, I'm no Bob Ezrin or Eddie Kramer, but uh, there's something about that, that that bugs me. Okay, but 
you know, either way. Yeah, but I agree, Dave, for sure. That that one line in the song is is definitely one of the, the, the most true uh, Gene lyrics on, on this record, you know, and that, that sells it for me, if anything, on, on this song. But again, then again, not my favorite song on the record either. There are others I like more so. I think your observation that line is fantastic. And that now makes it the strong point of that song for me. But it's a, it's a song, that, again, that just reminds me, you know, kind of Gene's state of mind at the time. And one of the reasons why this album is kind of forgetful for me, because the song just really stand out as one of those songs I put on a playlist at all. So I think John said it before. If I was going to cut this album down to four, four songs to make it an EP, this would not make the cut. Another goes away. I, 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 I know that Paul has a social conscience. You know, when he was in high school, he drew a picture of a homeless vet uh, that's, mm. that's begging on the corner and says, brother, could you spare a little social change? So mm. is there a part of Paul Stanley that's concerned about churches exploiting poor people for their money? Yeah, maybe. I don't know that it's keeping him up at night. He's never mentioned it before or since. And certainly Kiss has never been shy about asking for money from their fans. So it's a little hard for me to take this, <laughs> this song to that seriously. Well, making fun of religion is like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, you just really can't. You know what I mean? It's an easy target, at least I feel now. I mean, maybe not so much in 97, but... It seems like if you're going to write a song that you want to talk about people that are evil, that are pretending to be good, you can always go after the church. It's an easy thing to go. And I, I almost am starting to sort of present it. I had a friend who was English and used to always talk about all the movies that talked about how horrible the British were. And he was like, we're, we're the universal enemy of the entire world. But and it, to me, it's the same thing with churches. Churches always wind up sort of somehow being the universal enemy of everybody. And I'm and in no way, shape, or form am I saying, well, you all need to repent, my friends. But um, I'm definitely, it, it sometimes seems like an easy songwriting trick is to say like, oh, we're going to talk about, what's the, there's a Black Sabbath song that talks about, you know, um, televangelists and, you know, that kind of stuff. There's tons of people that do it. Yeah. And this song is very Sabbath-y as well yeah. that riff it's kind of interesting ear candy as the two competing riffs swirl around your head at the beginning oh yeah 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 mm -hmm. so that brings us to seduction of the innocent which gene simmons took the title from a book uh written by dr frederick wortham that um called for the censorship of comic books in the 1950s again the the lyrics to the song are really kind of vague um he seems to be maybe talking about the catholic church sex abuse scandal yeah um, that's what I thought. but i wouldn't i wouldn't you know bet on that um I, I think there's some interesting imagery the the idea of the collar that the priest wears being like a noose around his neck but again keeping with this theme about the the guy that he went to rabbinical school with maybe he became a rabbi and not a priest but we know that gene does tend to filter a lot of his jewishness through imageries of christianity hmm. and the bridge is cool too again these bridges are really interesting some of the most interesting parts of, of the song so you know the thing about where he's singing over uh you know, kiss the hand of a man for all season and don't know why. You know, that's a cool melody. You know, I like, I like that. But the rest of the song, I, I, you know, once you've heard the verse and the chorus, you got it. You know, do you, you really don't desire to hear it, you know, a couple more times. It just kind of goes on. Yeah. I like the congas. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, it's a cool song title. It, you know, it's a, it's a cool song title too, you know, but uh, again, like we were saying, this wouldn't make the, the EP. <laughs> Going on to I Confess, which is also the title of a Hitchcock noir movie about a priest that hears confession from a murderer and then the priest becomes the primary suspect for the murder, even though he didn't do it, but he can't tell the people what really happened because he is sworn to secrecy because of the laws of confession, right? So again, keeping with our theme here about the rabbinical school thing. <laughs> I like the song musically. I, I think melodically it's cool. I like the way how it goes from mellow to, I think the chorus really rocks. Um, I'm not really sure what this song is about exactly. I mean, there's the drug reference, cut your straight lines on the mirror, but then there's dipping the holy water, hand in holy water. So is it about a priest who like has a drug problem? And I don't know. Well, you know, it's kind of like uh, the lyrics in, um, oh, what's the, the slow song in heaven hell? Uh, Going blind. It's what really is he, is he singing about? Because even the line, um, you had a charmed life and you, you think, you're from grace, you know, you're long gone without a trace and you, you laugh when you want to cry. It's more like imagery than it is, you know, a solid storytelling thing, you know? Yeah. But then again, too, why is it I confess when he, all he says in the song is you confess? Yes, that's, a, that's another issue as well. <laughs> Misprint or just, you know, oversight or, you know, I don't know. Dave, you want to let that one go? Yeah, I've got nothing to add to that. I mean, I don't really... The one line that I think is really interesting in the song is, God never spoke to me, well, at least not yet, so let that be my last will and testament. I don't know this for sure, but I suspect the reason, one of the reasons why Gene did not become a rabbi is he may not believe in God, right? <laughs> but interestingly enough, I have a lot of Jewish friends, unlike being a priest, Believing in God, believe it or not, is not actually a prerequisite for being a rabbi, which is odd, but true. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, that is odd. The only other thing I would add is, uh, G I think Gene's vocals on the chorus, and Dave, you mentioned that the chorus is strong in terms of delivery. Uh, I think musically, the riff is, is super strong, and uh, Gene's vocals on, on the chorus are, are they're, they're heavy. You know, they remind me of something to be on Lick It Up in a way. And also good use of octaves. You know, again, um, probably Bruce, in the mirror, which I confess actually has some mirror imagery as well. So this is, you know, Paul's yang to that. Um, to me, this is the most blatant retro type song on it. Like this could be yeah. a Humble Pie Hendrix song. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, big time. Yeah. yeah, that's what I took too, that in the mirror and I walk alone both have a lot of Hendrix sort of added to it. And it seems to be sort it of is. them hearkening back to at least their earlier days of songwriting it's the most kiss like kiss song on there uh i feel um but it uh again the lyrics are very vague uh, just doesn't stand out to me i mean i like i like the musical arrangement a lot actually it's a breath of fresh air from all this you know grunge heavy duty stuff so it's a nice way to sort of bring it out um this is also again this is where I start to sort of lose 
the album. So again, this this brings me back into paying attention to what I'm listening to. At this, at this point of the record, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that this song comes along because I was starting to lose interest halfway through. You know, it started to go in some different directions and slowing down too much. Uh, this this brings it around for me because, I, I, again, I think it, you know, the that breakdown riff uh, reminds me of Manic Depression. We you know, mentioned Jimi Hendrix. Um, you know, this could be, like we said, a Humble Pie riff, too. Uh, but I also like the fact that you combine like these, you know, sort of retro riffy type ideas and then go into that sort of, you know, out of time, odd meter breakdown, you know, mm. which is, you know, more appropriate to this era you know, of music, you know, the, of the early 90s. I think that's one of the most interesting parts about the song as well. You know, it's not the kind of song I listen to, you know, to to think Paul's telling me, you know, a story here. And the, but, um, you know, to me, again, it, it's sometimes just about the riff. And is the riff good? Yes. Is it, you know, is it, is it cleverly written? Does it remind me of something that, that I like? Yeah. You know, and I'll listen to it. So for me, in a way, I, this is a, a, a nice uh, sort of refresh when listening to the album as a whole. Right. There's a lot of music going on in it, which makes it stand out. There's a little bit of cleverness though, in the, in the lyrics, you know, you were in the right until you left stuck in the middle. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, this is a, a nice change of pace from the previous three or four songs that were on the record. I, I have a, I, I have, I can't help but wonder out loud if this was one of the songs that Paul initially brought to the sessions, mm -hmm. at least in some idea. I'll bet you. And somewhere where there's some elements of what he had already written, because we all know Paul generally writes what he needs for a record. Yeah. yeah. So I, I wonder if some of the original thoughts that he had in his writing approaching th this record, and in, in, in at least in, in the uh, in the early stages of it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think I wonder. If, if this if this has some elements of that um, I like the song I, I think it's probably you know with jungle the two best Paul songs on the record um, mm -hmm. and certainly welcome at this point in the album sure I agree I like the line living on credit is kind of interesting the lines I don't understand are dial information station to station what are we talking about like I mean I, yeah. Bowie yeah right. <laughs> well, station to station album yeah sure okay yeah. okay maybe yeah. well station to station is such a weird cliche because it doesn't by the time we were even old enough we didn't really under even understood what that meant isn't that a that's a system of a repeating when you send out a radio wave or a phone call or something like that it has to actually hit another station meaning another you know um repeater like a cell phone tower kind yeah, of thing? yeah like a tower mm -hmm. that it then has to be repeated again um which gets okay but what does that have to do with like nothing so absolutely nothing dials information and right well that's just it it's because it's it's, it's, it's explaining it's, how telephones work i don't i mean yeah. <laughs> yeah um yeah it's uh it's it's just funny because it's one of those phrases that you hear a lot in songs but even in the the fact that i'm 50 years old it's something i've never actually had to deal with so it's you know i don't know it's kind of interesting yeah. There's another phrase like that. I can't remember what the other phrase is that is used all the time in songs that are like, that's an archaic term. You know, in terms of the lyrics, I'm obviously not you know, a lyric guy, quote unquote, but I mean, the lyrics, you know, I don't want to live only to die in your illusion is a cool line to me. Yeah, there's a lot of references to illusion on this mm -hmm. album right you had your you know i lived a life of illusion in childhood's end and i don't want to die in your illusions and then there's another reference to illusions on this song where he says uh 
only a matter of time leaving illusions behind, which is ironic because for them, it was only a matter of time until they got their illusions back and went back on the makeup mask, you know, circuit. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and think about this too, just from the, you know, the standpoint of the chorus. I mean, think of like carnival mirrors. When you look at those, I mean, everything looks completely different, you know, and everything is very disorienting. But then finally, if you look hard enough, you can see what the hell you're actually seeing, you know? Good point. It does kind of tie into the Carnival of Souls thing. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Hmm. How about that one, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so final song on the album, I Walk Alone. Uh, I'm trying to remember if this is, uh, if the Green Day song was out yet, but I don't think it was. <laughs> but it's it's actually a nice song because one, I dig it that it's uh, cool, uh, Bruce Kulik's, um, you know, vocal uh, debut debut and it's it's almost it almost feels like his tribute to uh hendrix there's like a little yes. bit of that you know you know part to yeah. it so yeah, i actually kind of, backwards drum. it's definitely and it's also interesting because it's sort of bruce kulik talking about being a loner and someone that is outside of the norm you know which is something um <clears throat> you don't really think about because you don't really think about Bruce Kulik's personality at all. I mean, if I had to explain Bruce Kulik to someone based on what I thought it was like, based on the like two or three interviews I've seen with him, I'd say he's someone who gets down and gets the work done. You know what I mean? Like as someone who's very, you know, is not a, maybe has the long hair, but is that's about as, as partying as he gets, you know what I mean? that he's very into what he does. And so this song sort of, I don't know, it's a nice introduction to him. I have no idea if it's actually about him, if he wrote it about himself, but. Um. I think it is. I think it became oddly prophetic also because he ended up mm -hmm. leaving the band. Um, yeah. There's another song that Gene wrote called I Walk Alone that ended up on the EZO album. That's a great mm -hmm. song. Um, this is probably some of my favorite lead guitar work from Bruce on this song. Like, it, my out of his whole career with kiss uh definitely some of my favorite playing of his on the album and i know there's some backwards guitar i think happening at certain parts mm -hmm. but it's just really interesting and tasty lead stuff happening for sure yeah i love you know, I, as soon as i heard this song it it th this kind of spoke to me as like his you know his 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 fractured mirror but with lyrics in a way because you know, mm. the intro has that kind of you know loopy you know, cascading, um, you know, intro, and it, it's obviously the outro too. Uh, but, you know, the riffs are badass, and um, the outro riff is really heavy, and yeah, there's a ton of backwards guitar in here that's really cool, but that arrangement towards the end uh, of the solo, where there's all those backward drums and backwards guitar, I mean, that must have been a beast of a thing to, to you know, to put together in the studio, man. That, you know, mm -hmm. that's... <laughs> that's, a, that's a piece of work. And it all hangs together really well. I mean, it's really yeah. well constructed. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, um, you know, the line of, uh, of got, got both, both my feet on the ground. I mean, that's, that's, a, you know, that seems to me like a personal lyric. That seems to be like something that, you know, speaks to him in terms of how he, he views himself. Um, it, because again, we've all, we've all met him a couple of times. When you speak to him about something and you've got his ear and he's into talking to you about something, he'll tell you, you know, and he'll have an, an absolute reason for why he wants to do certain things or play a certain way. Or if you ask him about how to play a certain song, in recent years, he's, you know, told me specifically, and you can tell that he's passionate about what he wants to do. Um, and I think he sells that. If you want to think of it as like a personal lyric or a personal uh, song he's, he's putting to the record. I, I, again, too, you know, he's 
co-written a bunch of songs on this record and he finally gets a chance to you know record a vocal for on a kiss song that's a major major achievement so hats off to him for that but I, it's one of my favorite songs on the record for sure this makes the ep dave it would have made the ep to me i think it is, it is the redeeming moment of this album for me i, I really <laughs> love the song i love the arrangement of the song we've already beat that up enough with the backwards guitars the you know the nod to Jimi hendrix Fractured Mirror, I don't know if that was in his head or not, but certainly you hear some of those elements in there. I, I think it was a great job, even on the demo, you know, wasn't bad, the one that's on the vault. Um, there's certainly elements there. I love the fact that it was Bruce singing this song. I thought it was very apropos based on where he was um, in the band at this time and, and their direction of travel or subsequently his direction of travel, as you said, it's kind of prophetic. Um, I, I love his vocal. He's not the strongest singer in the world, but there's something very honest about the way he sang this song. Yeah. Um, I, think they, I think they really produced his vocal very, very well within what his capabilities were. So it comes off as very, very organic to me, very real, real, real sincere. His guitar playing is fantastic. The arrangement front to back, I love it. Those harmonics, all the things that happen that lead into the song, the dynamics of that song are fantastic. And Oh, very well done. Good job, Bruce. Well, I have, I have a question. What is the story with the thing that was called Outro Mental? Supposedly something that was on either the, the bootleg that, you know, I guess 25 seconds after I Walk Alone ends, there's supposedly some instrumental track that was, it, it's either, I, I don't think it's on the CD, uh, but I have to find my, my you know, my, I'll call it a bootleg. I've got a bootleg cassette of, the, of this somewhere. Is that there? Because they mentioned it in a couple of books saying that it was, something that was not credited on the record, but it's supposedly on one of the versions of the record, but I can't find it on. Isn't it on the Kiss box set? I don't know. I, I should is. know, but I, I, oh, okay. Because it's it's apparently just like a, you know, maybe like a minute 10 uh, instrumental thing that was tagged on on some version of the record that was intended for the record and wasn't included. So I just thought I'd ask if anybody. Yeah, heard uh, I don't know. I think it's a, it was a little musical idea that it wasn't entirely finished. It was cool. Um, okay. But, also thinking about Bob Ezrin and his influence on this, right? You know, how does yeah. Destroyer end? You know, that, yep. that, that loop, yeah, that loop that goes on there. Uh, what do they call that rock and roll party is what, yeah. you know, the yeah. official yeah. title now. Um, it kind of reminds me of that, you know, maybe you know, there's a nod to that part uh, hmm. of their, of, you know, of the Kiss history. I don't know, uh, but I think it's, I think it's on the box set. Okay. Okay. Thanks. I'd forgotten about that, but now that you mentioned it, I know I've heard it at least once. Um, I sent you, uh, I think one of the one of the, the Psycho Circus sessions or something. Yes. And there's several Gene Simmons songs that are on that, right? Yep. One of them which is Carnival of Souls, and there's several songs that they actually did uh, with Eric and Bruce and Tommy. Uh, it, you know, it's uh, I think there's a total of four. But if you look at some of the lyrical themes, even Carnival of Souls there. Uh, that we all have to die sometime. That kind. I wonder if you take those Gene songs that you know were written for Carnival of Souls, within being one of them, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the Gene songs, if it would, if that album wouldn't have been more interesting as a Gene solo album, hmm. yeah, because hmm. the lyrical themes yeah. are all very, very similar to me. Yeah, and actually, a song like Within and Journey of a Thousand Years would be that the positiveness that a lot of the material on this album is kind of lacking in some ways. Hmm. So if you guys have it, I'd just be curious, you know, 
off the record at some point, you know, when we're having one of these end conversations, <laughs> you listen to the Gene songs on this record with those other songs that he wrote for, you know, for these sessions. And I wonder what it would have done for any of us as fans to listen to in that context. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, now I don't want to cut this out because I think, it, you know, it's yeah. interesting. <laughs> John, your final thoughts? You know, talking about it, I feel almost like at least they took a risk with it, I guess. But again, it's it's a total misfire. It's not a very good album. I think they could have kept maybe four songs and put that on something else. Although the solo album that Paul's going to do about his therapy is going to be awesome. I cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> Mike? Uh, the last thing I'll say is uh, it was refreshing to to revisit it. Um, it made me listen to other music that I haven't listened to in a long time, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but, you know, again, I'm not a lyrics guy, but at the same time with the packaging, I mean, there's minimal packaging with this thing. And if there was ever a record you would want to have the lyrics, this would have, I would love to have, to have had that, you know? Yeah. But I think they spent more time uh, with the packaging on the merchandise form. It's like eight sheets <laughs> but the cd is two and there's like you know two pictures of the guys that look really tired and not happy in the studio and the sort of gray matter thing in the middle with you know some song credits and that's about it but come on you know give me some lyrics guys i in this case i need them you know but either way um it was fun to listen to it again and, and rediscover it i'm sure i'll do that again in the future if not you know tomorrow so yeah yeah it's that cover is uniquely terrible yeah uh, i mean <laughs> Yeah, I know. It looks, uh, we're raw. Poorly. Right. Or it looks like the only photos that they took of a whole band in the studio that were in focus. You know? Exactly. Well, I read something today. I guess uh, Jerry Miller had uh, visited the studio and heard some of the songs. And I guess she had taken some pictures of them in the studio. And I'm wondering if these are, are those, you know? Mm, maybe, maybe. Let's check the photo credits. But either way, it was fun to listen to it again. I, I enjoyed revisiting it for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're always interesting when they do something out of their wheelhouse. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, whether or not it's a successful experiment, on the whole, it isn't. So... Thanks for joining us. And next week, we will talk about the reunion album, so to speak, Psycho Circus. Mm -hmm.